This is episode number 345 with Senior Machine Learning Engineer at Twitter Cortex, Dan Schiebler. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Day Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody. I'm super pumped for today's episode. But before we proceed, I've got a question for you Are you an advanced data scientist? Have you been listening to this podcast for a while? Well, maybe it's time to come meet in person. Do you know that at Data Science Go in the US in October 23rd, 24th, 25th in Los Angeles, which we're running on the UCLA campus, we're going to have a special track, a unique track dedicated to advanced practitioners in data science. If you come to this track, you will hear from people like Dan Schiebler, who you'll meet on today's podcast and who works at Twitter Cortex. That should already be an exciting thing. And he'll be talking about task engineering. Dan has presented at Data Science Go twice already. This will be his third appearance, and this time he'll be focused on advanced practitioners. So you'll learn about task engineering. And what is that? Well, that's a very interesting thing. You'll hear about it more on this podcast. Basically, it's you designing and understanding what you will do with your model, what happens to your model when it actually affects the underlying population, which is used to train that model. Very interesting, kind of like an inception type of scenario, but it happens and it happens at Twitter Cortex. You'll find out what you can do, a very hands-on workshop for advanced practitioners. Also, Morgan Mendez will be flying in all the way from IET to talk about airflow and how to build data science pipelines. Sinan Ozdemir will be coming uh, to talk about a Flask, Django, Docker containers, and Kubernetes, or we're still deciding which topic, or it will be BERT, Transformers, and Architecture in Use Cases for NLP and BERT. So as you can see already, just from these three examples, I'm personally handpicking the advanced practitioners to come talk with you. So if you're interested to skyrocket your data science career as an advanced practitioner, head on over to datasciencego.com and get your ticket today. And now on to today's episode. So the guest for today's episode is Dan Schiebler. It's been over two years since he came on the podcast last time in June 2017. Since then, a lot has changed in his career. He's left True Motion and now he works at Twitter Cortex. And there's going to be a lot of interesting components to this podcast, both on the technical side and the career side. So definitely you'll learn about Dan's career, how he makes his choices of moving and selects the companies he works for and why, uh, why he's in parallel to his career doing PhD research, how that affects how he, the lens through which he sees things in his career. Very interesting conversation. Uh, and his PhD, by the way, is on category theoretic machine learning. Boom, blows your mind. Blew my mind for sure. Um, uh, you'll learn about his work, work at Twitter Cortex. In fact, you'll learn about it quite intimately. So the things, of course, that we could discuss, you'll learn about vectors, embedding, nearest neighbors, techniques, and methodologies that he uses in his work. So in a nutshell, a podcast packed with value. Can't wait for you to hear it. So without further ado, let's welcome to the show, Dan Schiebler, Senior Machine Learning Engineer at Twitter Cortex.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Super Data Science Podcast. Very excited to have you on the show because today we've got a very special guest returning for the second time, Dan Schiebler calling in from New York. Dan, how are you going today? I'm doing great, Karel. How are you? Very good as well. And it's crazy, like you said just now, that um, there's no, there was no snow in New York the whole winter. Yeah, I so there was a week when I was away, and I heard that there was snow during that week, but I, I haven't seen any at all in the past few months. That's insane. Um, yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully things get better. This global warming thing is is getting quite out of hand. Like it was really hot in Australia the whole summer. Um, so yeah, strange, strange. Yeah. Anyway, Dan, it's been a while. I I looked our previous podcast was uh, June 2017, so that's two and a half years ago, and last time we caught up in person was at DSGO 2018, which was one and a half years ago. How have you been since then? Doing great. Uh, lots lots of really, uh, really interesting projects I've been working on, uh, great things happening. Yeah, and uh, you changed jobs. Congrats. You're, you've been like, you've been at Twitter, so you were at True Motion before, now you're at Twitter Cortex. You've been there for over two years. That's awesome. Congratulations, man. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Um, what's the best thing about Twitter? Well, it's a really fast growing platform, but it also has a really established niche. There's a, a lot of people who consider Twitter their favorite social network. It uh, balances real high quality information and uh, a lighthearted commentary. I think that it's it's in a, it's in a real sweet spot as far as social networks go. I, I'm really proud to be working here. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's managed to stay that way for for what is it like a decade now or more. I was I remember I was at university and and we had one lecture. This was like around 2012 or maybe 2011. We had one lecturer who was he was teaching an unrelated topic. It was about finance, but he was talking about how like we're looking at some theories of how things change in the world and how uh, there are cycles of certain um, phenomena. And he was giving an example of like social media, he was saying uh, Facebook, Twitter. And I remember his comments, like Twitter specifically. He said that Twitter is not going to be around in, in four years. So that was like the prediction for 2015 because um, simply naturally, we, we see that with a lot of things, with a lot of, um, other, I don't know, like um, uh, platforms that used to be popular, like Facebook was very popular back in the day, but now there's so many alter alternatives that like I haven't been on Facebook for, for years now. Um, so, but it's very impressive that Twitter has managed to adapt and stay afloat. Like, wh what are your comments on that? Why, why do you think it's so successful in that way? I, I think we have a good understanding of our user base and we have a willingness to change, but also a really deep understanding of what are the things that made Twitter popular in the first place. So I think mm -hmm. knowing our strengths and knowing our users gives us a, a real advantage. Yeah, okay, that's good. What, what, is a, what is, you would say, a way that Twitter has changed? Even since you've joined, like you've been there, what, two, two just over two years? What's, what's a way you've seen Twitter adapt to the changes in user needs over that time? Well, we very recently launched a topics product uh, mm -hmm. that allows users to follow individual topics rather than just following accounts. 
And while, while following accounts is an excellent way to consume information for many Twitter users, some users have difficulty finding uh, all of the information that they want on, on topics that they're interested in. And Topics is designed to uh, better serve those users. So I think this really, this initiative and this product and family of products really came out of an understanding of what are the challenges that some users have with the platform and how can we better serve the users who are not serving as well right now and bring them mm -hmm. to, to see all the things that are great about Twitter. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. That's, that's a really cool thing. It, it, um, kind of, I use Google Alerts. I don't use them that often, but I've set up Google Alerts for like data science. And so mm -hmm. once a week, I get an update on the most trending data science topics from Google. So something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's it's very similar. Uh, we're, okay. we're we're exact. We're still, of course, every day trying to make it better, and and really understand how we can best serve users on the product surface. Okay, gotcha. Um, and apart from Twitter, which we'll definitely get back to, like you've got so much going on in your life. When I looked at your LinkedIn, it was so exciting to see. So you. Finish up that uh, research at Brown University on deep learning, but <laughs> you 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 seem to never allow yourself to slack off or get bored. You started a PhD. That is so cool, man. That's awesome. Thank you. Why did you start? Why uh, did you decide to start one? Well, I, I really enjoyed my research at Brown. I, I think that we we really got a lot of high quality research and. It was very exciting to me to uh, have a, a pursuit separate from my work that uh, allowed me to see things from a more academic mindset and with more academic incentives. And I, I feel like that's really helped me grow. And so doing a, this PhD is really something that lets me continue to do that at a, at a uh, more formal and more intense pace. And so I'm yeah. very, very excited about it. Really enjoy yeah. it. Very cool. What's the topic of your PhD? Well, I see it on LinkedIn, but if, if you can share for our listeners. Yeah. So the, the topic is on category theory and machine learning. Uh, so really defining category theoretic constructions for discussing and researching and understanding the links between different kinds of machine learning and different kinds of fields that are closely related to machine learning. Mm -hmm. So category theory is, is a, a branch of mathematics that has uh, shown a lot of applications in unifying previously disparate areas of mathematics. And mm -hmm. there's been a, a good push recently in applied category theory in taking category theoretic ideas and trying to apply the same kind of unification powers to some more applied fields like game theory or biology or physics. Uh, there's been some really great research on quantum physics that's come from category theoretic perspective. And I, I'm trying to utilize these same tools to increase your understanding of machine learning. Wow, really cool. What's, what's an example you can give of uh, unification in mathematics through category theory? So there's some aspects of algebraic topology that are, were previously separate from similar concepts in analysis and mm. similar concepts in set theory, that mm -hmm. when we take a category theoretic standpoint and zoom out 
and look at these things at a higher level of abstraction, we can see these individual constructions as particular instantiations of a, a higher order uh, structure. So it's it's allows us to say, oh, these different kinds of transformations, they all satisfy these key properties that make it this particular kind of category theoretic transformation. And then when we're operating at that level of abstraction, we can simultaneously prove theorems about each of these different sub-area of mathematics by talking about things at this higher level. And so it lets us get many theorems for free is one of the uh, key tenets of, of category theory that is similar to how a, a programmer might structure their program so that core components only need to be implemented once rather than multiple times. Category theory allows us to have that same degree of abstraction on multiple fields of mathematics, or ideally applied fields as well. Wow, fantastic. Love I love your uh, tagline, uh, theorems for free. You should, <laughs> you should put that in, in your subtitle on LinkedIn or something. <laughs> I, I create. I'll, I'll consider it. I, I, I didn't come up with it, but it, it, <laughs> it, also, is, it does good, do a good job of, of describing what it is. But like when you were talking about that, it, like a few light bulbs went off in my head because it's been a while, but in my uh, bachelor degree, I had both, well, I had algebra, algebraic topology back in my high school and I had set theory in, the, in my uh, degree. And like I had... I remember like feeling like these two are very similar, like like this mm. set theory stuff. Like I've seen it somewhere. It really looks a lot like what we did in high school and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, I like again. It was been it's been a while, so I I wouldn't even be able to come up with examples. But I can see uh, I can see the value in that, and that's a really cool, um, very abstract though, uh, a thing to to be doing like. Um, I'm just curious, like, it's not really linked to your work at Twitter, is it? There are links, but the links, I would say, are at a very uh, high-level bird's-eye view. And mm. so I would say that, that the, the fact that the day-to-day -day work is very different was largely by design. I, mm. it, it's very challenging to have a, a full day at, at a job, even a job that you love, and then go home and do lots of other work that feels very similar with similar frustrations and similar problems. One mm -hmm. of the benefits of doing my, focusing my PhD research on something so different and so much more theoretical than the concerns that I focus on at work is that when I do one, it doesn't exhaust me for the other. Each one allows me to work a different part of my mind that allow other parts to rest. And so that really is, is a nice way to balance things in a, a more holistic fashion. Love it. And that's sim similar to what you did back when you were at uh, TrueMotion and you were doing the research at Brown University. At TrueMotion, you were doing machine learning, but at Brown University, you're doing research on deep learning, as far as I remember. Yes, my... my Research at Brown was was far more focused on uh, like standard deep learning for image modeling, whereas my my research at and my, my work at True Motion was was much more focused on a signal processing perspective on on machine learning and, and machine learning for signal processing applications. So there, mm -hmm. it, it was very very similar in that the uh, the two 
main pushes had overlap, but felt very different. Hmm. And it's not like you have to do this research. It feels like you're doing it more as a hobby. Um, it, what, is, there, is there any other uh, motive for, for doing research? Or maybe somebody listening to this podcast might think, oh, wow, like, maybe I should get into research too. <laughs> what, 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 what's the reason to, to continuously doing research? First at Brown, now you're doing a, your PhD at, at Oxford. Um, any, any comments on that? Well, I think there's I think there's a lot of reasons. I, I would say that for me, I genuinely enjoy it. I, I enjoyed it at a very deep level, and, and and I don't think that it would be the right thing for someone to do who didn't really genuinely enjoy it. But I, I think that there are a lot of significant benefits beyond just my own enjoyment. Really, giving myself the opportunity to look at research from the perspective of a researcher as opposed to the perspective of a practitioner allows me to see ideas on a deeper level than just, is this the right tool for me to use for this job right now? And more to think about things in terms of their deeper implications and other work that they might open up, other avenues of exploration. That kind of perspective, I think, it makes me smarter, it makes me more creative, and it really gives me the ability to learn new things much more easily. It's far easier for me to pick up ideas on some t other team at Twitter who I haven't worked with really understand what they're doing and understand the kinds of problems that they face because I've drilled myself to be able to understand really complex topics really quickly through my research experience. Mm. Wow, very, very succinct explanation. So there we go. Um, if uh, somebody listening to this is, I agree, is passionate about topic, you know, maybe consider research in that space. This Absolutely. has its advantages like that. And let's get to your work on Twitter. Like I read on LinkedIn, the description, uh, how you describe your role, very cool description. You develop systems and models to improve the performance and efficiency of machine learning on Twitter. So it's like Indeed. you're doing machine learning on machine learning almost. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I think in order to... In order to really give a context, I, I can define the, the role of Cortex in general and then how I fit mm -hmm. into that. So Twitter is, Twitter's engineering is split across a large number of product teams serving the different kinds of product surfaces, the timeline, the uh, advertisement products, the notifications products, or email products. Cortex is an organization within Twitter that develops machine learning systems and components of machine learning models that are incorporated into the modeling pipelines of each of these different teams. And so our work is at a level of uh, abstraction, similar, similar to the notion of, of category theory, where we mm. are developing things that fit into multiple different products. Often what we will do is we will assemble a couple of different product services that seem like they could be solved with a particular modeling approach or seem to share similar restrictions on their current performance and identify different ways that we can develop models that would serve each of these product services. My, my mm -hmm. team in particular focuses on models that utilize embeddings and nearest neighbors to serve products where we need to match users or uh, other things, mainly users, with uh, large sets of possible candidate content, like a large hmm. set of tweets or, or large set of uh, potential notifications. 
Interesting. So embedding the nearest neighbors. So let's talk about nearest neighbors for a second. Because for nearest neighbors, or for any kind of categorical machine learning, I would expect you need a range of um, fields or a range of uh, columns to be working with. Like, at what kind of columns are you working with at Twitter? Because uh, there's mostly just the, the tweets that people have. Well, so in this case, if we're serving nearest neighbors, what we would be doing is first, the nearest neighbors are defined over an embedding space. So the, mm -hmm. the, the columns in this case are the embedding dimensions. We would, if what is embedding? Sorry, can you get me up to speed, please? What, what yeah. is an embedding space? Yeah, so an embedding in, in this card is, is just a vector representation of some kind of entity. So, for instance, it could be a 300-dimensional vector or 1,000-dimensional vector that represents a, a user or a tweet. Mm -hmm. And so the embedding plus nearest neighbors approach for recommending content involves constructing embeddings for users and constructing embeddings for content such that the distance or angle between two embeddings is indicative of some notion of affinity or similarity where mm. users will be close in embedding space to tweets that they might like. And we can utilize this to then create these embeddings of all of these users and all of these tweets and then find nearest neighbors in the space to recommend content. Gotcha. And then other teams can use the embeddings you've created to run their machine learning. Indeed. So they could, they could use the embeddings we create as features or... Yeah. They can use the pipelines that we build to create the embeddings in the first place to create new embeddings that are optimized for their surface. And sometimes wow. these new embeddings are constructed on top of other embeddings and everything yeah. can feed into each other. Oh, wow. That's so crazy. Um, and if you're able to share, because I'm sure there's like parts which you can't disclose due to uh, proprietary information, but if you're able to share... Um, so the embeddings that you create for users that are indicative of, um, you know, like if two of these vectors, like thousand dimensional vectors, are close, like have a very little angle between each other, then that means the users are kind of close in their behavior or in uh, their characteristics. If, uh, if two vectors for content are close, that means maybe somebody who will like this content will like that content as well. The applications, I, I can see the applications of that. But what goes into the embeddings in the first place? Like going back to the question of what are the original features? Because you don't really have, like apart from the Twitter text, like the messages they send or people they follow, um, there's no really transactional data that the, this person, like on, on Netflix or on Amazon, that this person purchased these items or, um, you know, they were, uh, yeah, so basically the, these are their specific interests. So is it all to do with NLP? I'm just curious, like what goes into the embeddings in the first place? Yeah, 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 great question. So to start, I, I would say that NLP, while very important for many use cases, for the purpose of recommendation, is actually a, a very myopic view on the structure of a tweet. And, and the reason for this is that Jack Dorsey tweeting a, a single word tweet, like hello, or something mm -hmm. like that, has very, very different set of users who I might want to recommend that to than if I tweeted hello or something mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so often the most useful information that when we can look at a tweet it, from, from the tweet perspective can be the people who have interacted with the tweet. And 
the uh, dynamics of the author of the tweet. And so when we when we start constructing things from there, there's I guess to take take one step back from there. There's a huge amount of information on Twitter that's represented in terms of the engagement graph and the follow graph. So the follow graph is is just the relationship between all of the users based on who follows who. And mm -hmm. the engagement graph is the relationship between users and tweets, as well as users and users, based on users choosing to like tweets. So mm -hmm. the the engage or using users choosing to like or reply to or retweet tweets, mm -hmm. and these kinds of behaviors incorporate an enormous amount of information. We can determine that a, a tweet that has a, a hundred likes all from machine learning focused people really gives a very strong indication that the tweet is about machine learning. And we can drill down very deeply into content utilizing this kind of social or uh, contextual information that we, we also often refer to as collaborative uh, in a nod to collaborative filtering. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Gotcha. You, so you basically you can even extract an information that this tweet is about machine learning based on the likes it's getting from from whom it's getting those likes without even digging into the processing of the text within that uh, tweet. Yeah, there, there there are of course limitations to this. Sometimes a tweet might be about a social issue that is popular among machine learning researchers. Uh, or a, a personal issue related to a popular personality machine learning may end up with a very similar like profile to one that is about machine learning at a, at a more core level. But often for recommendation use cases, understanding which communities of people are interested in something and representing something in terms of that perspective can be the most rich way to get the kinds of information that the model needs to know. Of course, there as... There is a lot more information that can be driven out of the tweet text itself, and and we do of course extract this and and uh, utilize this. But in general, if if you had to choose between just the collaborative information or just the tweet text information, the collaborative information would win without a doubt. Oh, very interesting, very interesting. And what kind of tools do you use for this? Uh, well, we we have uh, stacks constructed in Scala and Python at, at the language level. Uh, our mm -hmm. modeling is almost entirely done in TensorFlow from mm -hmm. the uh, perspective of, of all neural networks and such. We, we do have a number of in-house uh, matrix factorization style tooling that's written in Hadoop or Spark mm -hmm. that's used for some applications. And we do have a, a very large Hadoop deployment that um, uses a, a piece of software that we, we open sourced called Scalding, which is a, a Scala-based uh, Hadoop tooling mm. that uh, works quite well for constructing really large uh, Hadoop jobs that can operate at Twitter scale. Mm. Okay. And so is that, is that a, a good description of what uh, a machine learning engineer does is that you prepare machine learning tools for other people and departments to use i would not say that it's a just a construction of tools i, I would say that there are 
machine learning. So machine learning engineers at Twitter fall into a couple of different categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, myself, I, I would not say that my job would be described that way. Uh, mm-hmm. My uh, my work is more around the construction of instantiations of the embedding pipeline. So my my team often partners with product teams, and we have our own set of tooling and our own set of systems that are really designed for constructing these kinds of embedding nearest neighbor pipelines. And so we will actually construct the models and help other teams construct these models uh, in, in a more consultancy fashion. Mm-hmm. But there are engineers within Cortex whose role is to create the deep learning model deployments or the platform tooling for analyzing data or scheduling model, model uh, reruns. And so there's a, there's a spectrum of these more core engineering tasks and more direct modeling and uh, machine learning model creation tasks. Mm, okay. Okay. So it's it's like a variety of things. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and you you mentioned team a couple of times. How big is your team, and uh, which um, like which part of the team are, are you uh, working in? Yeah. So uh, Cortex as a whole is <laughs> about hundred and fifty people. Wow. Um, of which my my team is is in a the sub organization focused. Uh, largely on platform, and our team is about ten people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my my role is really uh, more focused on model construction and an an understanding of the relationship between models and business value. The uh, that my my team has some people who are more focused on the optimization of our nearest neighbor pipelines, which, which are very uh, highly optimized and, and state-of-the-art, um, and some people who are, are more focused on the, the core software development as well. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, and when you say nearest neighbor, it's, um, does that mean like you went and consciously uh, selected for your uh, categorization the nearest neighbor algorithm, or it's just is that just a like a broad way of saying that's we're finding the nearest neighbors, but you might use because there's other methods of uh, clustering that could be used to to group users into groups of finding like uh, as you said uh, doing this collaborative filtering. Um, so just a question around that. Yeah. So there's a one of the benefits of the, the reason why we selected a. Uh, so we actually use an approximate nearest neighbors system. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, <laughs> the reason why we selected that is based on scale. Um, mm-hmm. It's not, the reason is not, is because we're not simply grouping users together, but we're trying mm-hmm. to find the nearest content for each user. So mm-hmm. if, if we're in a situation where we have uh, 300 million users and you know ha- half a billion tweets, in a, in a particular day, and we're trying to match for each user the best tweets. Exhaustively looking at each user tweet pair is completely not scalable. That's mm-hmm. uh, you know 300 million times 500 million operations, and a 
uh, many standard strategies would, would require utilizing something like that. Our approximate nearest neighbor systems allow us to dramatically optimize this by constructing these graphs of uh, tweets that the, the user essentially the user's embedding essentially traverses. And so that's that's a that, that's that's a whole topic that's uh, very interesting on, on the the construction and optimization of these algorithms for really allowing the user to content pairing process to scale. Uh, but I'd say there, there are other solutions, of course, that, that can solve the same thing. Like clustering is, is one that you mentioned. Uh, th this one is, is nice because of its connection to the, the amount of flexibility that we have in the construction of the embedding. The embedding itself can be constructed such that the distance relationships are a model output. And so any kind of machine learning technique can be utilized there and deployed uh, essentially at, at scale for free. And, and so that's a, that's a very attractive aspect of, of that family of algorithms. Wow. Very cool. I was just thinking, um, this, when you gave the example of 300 million times 500 million operations, do you think that once uh, or if quantum computing picks up, that problem would be able you'd be able to solve it completely differently just like just look at all the pairs and, and well, I, I think the... there's all kinds of um optimizations that we do right now that would be unnecessary if we had access to to quantum computers and in the deployment of machine learning models certainly but in the training as well there's mm -hmm. many things that we don't we're not able to do because of scale restrictions in terms of data collection pipelines and such that that would be completely overhauled in the presence of, mm -hmm. of uh, really effective quantum computers that's very cool have you done uh have you looked into quantum computers quite a bit not not as much as i'd like there's a uh research group at oxford that does a there's a lot of really interesting research in the in the intersection of, of category theory and, and quantum computers utilizing category theory to make uh, some quantum computing ideas much much simpler and and mm -hmm. easier to build on top of but but i can't say that i i'm familiar with it at, at more than a surface level okay wow yeah that's uh it's a very exciting topic and i can't wait <laughs> to see what happens when yeah, absolutely when the quantum computers come. Um, okay, well, thanks for such a interesting description of your role at Twitter. It's very exciting to see, and I can see how you're uh, super pumped to go to work every day, smash Indeed. it out, and then come come back and do your research. <laughs> that is right. that is really cool. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. So, uh, for our listeners, uh, we got an exciting announcement. Stan was at uh, Data Science Go. 2018 and you are coming back this year very excited to have you back how are you feeling about that i'm feeling great looking forward to it yeah and and as we discussed uh, this time um we are going to be uh, we're considering aiming for a more for like an advanced practitioner talk for dan so out of all the things that you've talked about like what's the first thing if you had to pick a topic for your talk right now what what's the first thing that comes to mind what would like in a, in a hands-on type of workshop, what is it that you would be passionate to share with, uh, with the audience? 
Oh, I, absolutely. Task engineering. The, the process of creating a machine learning task where a model that does well on that task will actually drive business value. The, the creation of models that can tie closely to core value, I, I think is something that is, is, a, is a real science that I, I've continued to learn about. And I, I've, I, I've, I think is, is one of the most important areas in uh, machine learning and data science for people to understand at a deep level. Interesting. Can you give an example? Like, what's an example of task engineering in, in business? Well, so at Twitter, for example, when we train our models on tweets or users or, or any sort of data, we need to be very careful about how the models that we deploy affect the data that we're training on. A model that's already trying to show users content that it thinks they'll like is corrupting the quality of the training data that mm. feeds back into the model in mm -hmm. that the distribution is shifting. Mm. And so the task that we are constructing for the model when we retrain it is now worse than it was originally. And mm -hmm. so the awareness of these kinds of issues and the construction of the model task and the pipelines that support it in a way such that increased model performance will continue to increase business metrics is a, a really, really uh, deep science that has enormous applications. Wow, that's very cool. That's a very good description because the data you're dealing with, like you're dealing with um, users on your, and, and that would be applied, now you th think about it, that would be applied across most business cases, like the only situations where that wouldn't be relevant is when, for instance, your the data you're analyzing is the national cohort or the global cohort, like like a massive um, sample of people, like you're analyzing census data or uh, even daily data, but in a much greater um, ecosystem than your own company, and then you're applying it to your company, then what happens in your with your user base with your company doesn't really affect the world that much. Um, but like, for instance, if you're uh, here, like an example, like if you're analyzing stock prices, and then you go and buy some Tesla stock, or you sell some, I don't know, something else, Apple stock, that's not going to affect the world, you can keep analyzing the same way you were analyzing before. But in your case, you're like, you're directly impacting the whole user base of your model. Absolutely. And, and so these, these kinds of decisions and how these decisions can lead to differences in user consumption is really critical. Uh, things like if we start sending bad notifications to users and users start opting out of the notifications, then we're in a situation where we no longer have any data coming from users who really didn't like their notifications. And so uh -huh. a model that now starts performing well on this new setting and this new world where we don't have these, uh, this data from the users who didn't like notifications is not actually the best model. And so the, the understanding of that as we construct a task such that the best model on that task is actually the best model for deployments is really critical. Wow, that's such a cool teaser. I, <laughs> I want to come to this workshop now. This is exciting. 
Uh, awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much. This is gonna gonna get pique people's interest in uh, in the event and also specifically your talk. So, if you want to learn about task engineering, check out Dan's talk at uh, Data Science Go 2020, 23rd, 24th, 25th October. And now I wanted to jump into something really cool. So I'm not sure if you saw, but like 24 hours ago, I posted a question on. Uh, LinkedIn. I was about to say Twitter. <laughs> On LinkedIn, that's uh, that's where I hang out more. I, um, for some reason, it's happened that way. And I posted a question for our followers or our audience to post questions for you and see what they want to ask you on the podcast. So we're going to go through these. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? All right. See what I can do. All right. Here we go. So Deepa asks, how are unsupervised models improved over time and what are the metrics you track to measure them? Uh, great question. They're, they've improved over time in terms of scale, certainly, but in, in terms of our understanding of them, the development of them, there's many kinds of really deep unsupervised models, of course, that have come a very long way in the face of improved computation. I think that tracking the performance of an unsupervised model is something that's extremely application dependent. If we're training a feature extractor, then the performance of the model that is utilizing those features would be the sort of thing that we would be tracking. If we're tracking something that's going to be used for visualization, some sort of clustering or generative model, then it's much more it's much trickier. There are heuristics we might be able to apply, but we may actually need human evaluation in order to really effectively compare models. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and does that change between unsupervised and supervised models? Well, supervised models tend to have a more built-in performance metric in that there's a goal in mind, some sort of prediction goal that we've constructed. And so especially for classification, you might have how well is this model actually completing this classification task. But of course, as, as I mentioned a moment ago with task engineering, this problem is not automatically solved for supervised models because we have these situations where this task we're training our model on is not actually what we're interested in having it do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, well, over time, things might change as well. Like uh, previously, we, in one company, I had a situation where uh, we're building a classification model and a fantastic, or actually a classification model was built uh, maybe, I don't know, 18 months before I joined. And everything was was great but then the um population behavior changed mm -hmm. in like because of i don't know the a aging of population or maybe um some sometimes geodemog not geodemographic behaviors of, of consumers and especially in retail change and the model was no longer working even though originally it had that uh, supervised training uh, absolutely that that's I think that's a problem that many companies face. That, that's certainly a problem we grapple with. Mm. And how do you deal with it? Regular retraining is, is one of the basic hygiene techniques that we utilize. But uh, of course, when, when we're in situations where our own model is corrupting the data stream, mm -hmm. there's uh, even that alone is not enough. And so things yeah. like setting aside certain... Uh, populations for um, deploying different models on different groups of users and trying to avoid these kinds of self-contamination effects can go a long way. Gotcha. 
Uh, next question is from Linda. What emerging technologies should we be paying attention to and which industries will they impact the most? I think that improvements in hardware have really come a long way in terms of the uh, types of machine learning models that can be used, the kinds of applications that be built on top of it. And I think that one of the reasons why compute hardware in, in terms of things like GPUs and TPUs and uh, up, up until a few years ago, improved speed uh, CPUs becomes so important in terms of what gets built is that it, it's a, a feedback effect. When a new kind of hardware is shown to be really powerful for a particular application, both more things get built utilizing that hardware and for that application, which then spurs additional research into that kind of hardware. One of the reasons why machine learning conferences are so <clears throat> completely swamped right now with a super deep networks rather than more rule-based or symbolic kinds of approaches is that the sorts of hardware that we have access to, the, the best, most powerful kinds of hardware, is really well-suited for deep networks. And that's a result of the self-supporting process of deep networks encouraging more research on these kinds of hardware, which then encourages more research and better results from deep networks. Mm. Gotcha. Oh, I do. Would you agree with uh, the? I've seen in the news recently, over the, over the past couple, maybe half year or so, that law, uh, Moore's law is dead. That we've come to a limit in terms of how small our integrated circuits can be and how many transistors can fit on them, and that's it. Like from here, that exponential, uh, amazing benefit that we're getting is is over, and now it's all going to flatten out. Well, I think in some ways, in some ways, I definitely think that's true. I, I, I can't say that I'm uh, an expert in transistors or the uh, the necessary uh, limitations on on how small we can make them. But I can say that improvements in our ability to parallelize computations and improvements in the construction of specialized hardware have allowed us to maintain exponential growth in terms of the computations we're capable of. Certainly mm -hmm. these effects seem like they have limits and ceilings that are much lower than the seemingly unbounded limitations of Moore's law. But it's certainly possible that as innovations continue, we'll be able to find out new ways to utilize other kinds of tricks to continue to improve computation. I, I don't think that the speed of computation is necessarily never going to be able to increase with an exponential rate mm -hmm. simply because we can't make transistors smaller right now. No, I agree. I, I completely agree. I think we'll find a way. <laughs> it's been so good. Um, okay, so the next one is from Oscar, who's asking about some insights into how Twitter is using machine learning to detect bots or bot accounts or bot farms and what are scalable solutions that are being implemented for cybersecurity and or fraudulent account detection. Any anything you can share on that? So I, I can't talk about uh, specifics on this, uh, also because I, I don't work on those teams, and so I don't uh, have an intimate understanding of the specifics. Uh, mm -hmm. But but I will say that there's a uh, 
multidisciplinary teams combining machine learning techniques, heuristics, and really rigorous research and understanding of, of the uh, sorts of adversaries in the fields and the user behaviors, the diversity of all kinds of healthy user behaviors as well. That's understood not only at an engineering machine level, but also at a very human level uh, to, to combat these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right <coughs> um, next one is from Nick Hill, who's saying, how much time is realistically spent on data to get it ready for model de development? Well, I think it really depends on what state the data is beginning in and the expectations of the model. Start, mm -hmm. of course, it's very easy to go to scikit-learn and train a logistic regression on the IRS data set. There's really not much data processing <laughs> required at all. Yeah. But accessing data, for example, if, if you are a data scientist who works at the Federal Reserve, it may take you years to be able to complete mm -hmm. all of the necessary documentation and track down all of the data in all of the different places under each of the different permission walls and then process it into a form that will real realistically work. So I'd say somewhere between 10 seconds and multiple years, depending <laughs> on your, your application. Oh. Uh, re realistically, for, for a, more, a more useful answer, I, I'd, I'd say in general, probably at least 80% of, of modeling time would be spent mm -hmm. on some sort of data-related task. Yeah, yeah. like out of, out of the whole, right? So the modeling would be 20% of your time spent on the whole thing. Yeah. Mm. And... Um, but like at, for instance, at Twitter, when you're uh, developing some some new model or something, I assume you already have some like uh, data pipelines prepared. But if you were to create a new data pipeline, how long would that take you? Yeah. So, I mean, even for creating new data pipelines, a lot of our tooling is is very well developed for exactly that purpose for the mm. process of creating new data pipelines and for the process of uh, maintaining the data pipelines that we already have. I think the most time-consuming problems at Twitter are really understanding model behavior and understanding how a new source of data will allow us to uh, construct better models and less about the, the actual engineering work itself or the modeling work, both of which are very well supported on tools. It's the decision-making and analysis and understanding that can often take most of the time. Isn't that amazing? Like you, you don't need to process data. Like this is one of the rarest cases in data science where you just have the luxury of, all right, I'm going to think about creative stuff all day long. Well, of course, there's, there's some, some more um, mundane task, I'm sure, but you've created an environment uh, or the, the environment on Twitter is such that you can just do the fun stuff all the time. That, that's so exciting. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that it's, it's supported by the uh, really serious investment of Twitter into making modeling easier and making modeling more scalable. I will say mm -hmm. that there's, of course, trade-offs to mm -hmm. having so much of the pipeline already exist and, and already be buildable and adaptable in that when we want to builds modeling strategies that break some of the abstractions that are in place, it can be very challenging to understand the pipelines that have been built up over years by many different teams. And so there's a very, very real learning curve to the depth of Twitter's infrastructure and, and Twitter's modeling pipelines 
that, that I think can be intimidating for people who, who uh, start. Was, was it already in place when you started two years ago? Uh, it certainly changed very significantly. Uh, but there was a very serious amount of this infrastructure was was definitely in place. I, I remember having mm. difficulty at the beginning, really wrapping my head around the, the pure scale of what exists. It was very common for me at the beginning was to, was to to build 80% of a solution only to find that some other team in London or Boston had a solution that was far <laughs> better than mine that they'd spent the last several years on that really completely obviated the need for any of my work. In the first place, mm. and so uh, often uh, understanding what's been done previously in a space, really at a deep level, and what can be exploited from the work that's previously done, can be more valuable than trying to to write a half baked solution, even if it's can be more fun to write a half baked solution. <laughs> gotcha. Um, and it's interesting because, like, from from this, it sounds like it's a big investment for, and a big bet for Twitter to bring you or someone uh, on board to just spend a, f a few months getting their head around these things uh, because like the you, you like they're investing their time their efforts into this new person that's joining the team they want to be sure I guess they want to be sure that like you're going to stay for long enough to create some stuff of your own and bring bring your value to the team so we didn't speak about this, but I'm curious, like, how did your interview with Twitter go? Did, was it very clear at the start that, okay, this is a perfect match or uh, you were still kind of like thinking or they were thinking, um, you know, is this like, how, how did they know that you are the right person? Like, it's only a 10 person team that you by adding you to this team that uh, they're going to bring a lot of value to the company. Well, the team that I'm a part of now didn't really exist when I started. When, when I started mm. Cortex, the entire organization was only about 15 people. And wow. so, I, I, it, so, like I said, it's, it's almost, almost 10 times larger now. So it, it really was a... I, I don't think that when they hired me, they, they were thinking about the way things would be right now in this position. Mm. I, I think they were more considering the possible ways that Cortex might develop and Twitter might develop, and how I could help and fit into these uh, different possible developments. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I, I think that one of the reasons why Twitter has managed to remain relevant and and really stay at, at a uh, be be really an important social network in in the world is because there's a lot of attention paid to the kinds of people that we hire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, and another question popped to my, my mind. So the team Cortex has grown 10x from 15 to 150. Um, you've been there two and a half years. Any thoughts on like, is it in your plans to become like a data science manager or you prefer to do the hands-on work and uh, develop your skills there? Well, I, I definitely feel that I've grown significantly as a leader over the course mm -hmm. of my, my time at uh, Twitter. I've, I've been tech lead for a number of projects and I'm sort of continuing to, to lead various sorts of initiatives. I, I do think that at some points, perhaps in the not so distant future, I, I will switch to management because I, I do really enjoy leadership and thinking mm -hmm. about things from, from a higher level. Uh, mm -hmm. at, at the moment, I'm invested in making the 
technical projects that I'm a part of be successful, whether that's through direct technical involvement, mentorship, or leadership on a more macro scale. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay, let's do one more question. Um, there's a lot more, <laughs> but this one sounds, this one got the most votes, so people actually voted for the questions. Oh, cool. uh, so here we go. How much of computer science topics, like, uh, oh, this is from, from Oren. Oren asks, how much, computer, how much of computer science topics, like algorithms and data structures, does a non-computer science data scientist need to master in order to advance from a build a model and present your report type of data scientist to a machine learning engineer that normally deals with production processes type of data scientist? So I would say that there's a, that there's a couple of ways of looking at that. So on one sense, I, I do think that it's quite possible to really advance as a serious engineering engineer without really ever thinking super deeply about some of the core data structures and algorithms. But I do think that somebody who does that is at a disadvantage because there are many concepts that are critical in terms of the structure of different sorts of systems and the interplay of different kinds of components and the elegance of different sorts of techniques that feel very unified and clear and easy to understand when you understand these key topics to begin with, but can feel more jagged or harder to wrap your mind around or harder to have that, be, have that sort of solution be your first attempt if you're coming at things from learning each fact individually rather than really developing an understanding of these, these kinds of fundamentals. That said, I, I will say that there are situations even when these fundamentals themselves can help directly. Not too long ago, I, I found myself in in a situation where uh, in a, a suffix tree, which which is a, a kind of classic intro to data structures and algorithms sort of of data structure, was exactly what I needed in order to to build a, a feature importance algorithm that that would run efficiently, and and implementing it, it yielded a ten x speed up over the the next best solution, and I, I certainly never would have come to that had I not taken a data science and algorithms class back in the day. But the fact that this is a single anecdote from six months ago, and I certainly can't think of another one in the past year, I think probably says that the knowledge itself is not incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So focusing on fundamentals and structures of systems. Um, so you gave that one example of a suffix tree, which like I... <laughs> I'd be curious to to learn more about, but I'll do that in my own time. Um, what's uh, what's another what's another example? Not like of an application of a system, but uh, the how thinking about the fundamentals can help somebody advance their career. So there's a lot of times when the construction of a system can take different roles in terms of its interaction with different interfaces. There's a degree of abstraction that comes in in the creation of software systems, the assembling of pipelines <laughs> that deal with different sorts of data sources, different kinds of modeling infrastructure, the different ways that we can structure these sorts of software pipelines that touch on each of these different kinds of systems 
when they're well structured in ways that make bugs difficult to introduce, make systems easy to adapt and add to and redesign, this can yield enormous improvements in model quality and pipeline quality over time, especially when operating as part of a team. And so I think that the, the one of the largest applications is in the construction of data generation pipelines and the model training code as it interfaces with these pipelines. And, and having mm-hmm. those constructed in a principled way is uh, really valuable. Okay. And uh, so in a nutshell, the answer would be uh, rather than going for quantity of topics in computer science, uh, go for the fundamentals and structure of systems and uh, think things through holistically. And so then the follow-up question I'd have is, how does one ha- how does one go about learning this kind of stuff? Like, do you have any uh, books you can recommend or uh, sources online or, you know, just even topics, specific topics to look into for somebody who's curious to follow this pathway, but just doesn't know where to get started? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think that there's value in going through old, going through core algorithms, data structures, textbooks for for the purpose of of understanding these these concepts. I, I personally like uh, algorithms by Dasgupta um, for that. But I, I would say that that that's not the that that would be more of a second order strategy. I, I think that the first order strategy in terms of the fastest way to really develop this intuition on a deep level is to simply be part of large software projects. To uh, from For somebody working at home, this would mean contributing to open source projects, ideally in a way that you would be able to get feedback on the code that you write through code reviews or uh, through uh, a community of, of people who are contributing to a large project. Or for somebody who's working as a data scientist in a company, trying to get an understanding of the kinds of systems that software engineers are working on. And if you could even be part of one of those projects for a little while and understand these things that a, uh, from the perspective of the software engineers who write code that gets reviewed by multiple people and is part of really large, complex, multi-tenant infrastructures and the kinds of concerns involved there, there's really no better way to learn these sorts of issues than by by simply working on them on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and if you're stuck like at home, like you don't have uh, access to something like this at work, or you're still learning and things like that, then just go to hit GitHub, open a uh, a recent development in machine learning or deep learning, whatever you're interested in, and read through how. It developed. You know what? What is version one? What is version two? What is fixed? What has changed? What bugs came up? What bugs were removed? What uh, what features were added? What the, what were the user complaints and so on? And and just by doing that, you can understand better the intuition, as uh, Daniel pointed out, the the intuition that went into all this and the motives that were driving these changes. Yeah, absolutely. And contributing is is. As as you become more comfortable being part of it and and contributing it yourself and and feeling the pain of these bugs, I think is is a really exceptional way to grow. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. 
Well, on that note, we've come to, we're coming close to the end of this podcast. It's been super, super exciting. Um, how, how did you enjoy your second appearance on, on the show so far? Oh, it was great. Excellent. Lots of fun. Great. Great. Yeah, I love, love chatting to you. Great, uh, great insights. Any parting thoughts? Any things you'd like to wish our uh, audience uh, on their way to becoming uh, machine learning engineers and data scientists? I, I would say to really keep your mind open with respect to learning things. That it's, it can be very easy to fall into the trap of only reading about the very latest, highest scoring on benchmarks sorts of architectures and really focusing on that. But a really deep understanding of how machine learning got to where it is. Uh, understanding what was machine learning like in 1990? What were the people then thinking? I, I think going at things from a, a temporal perspective is an excellent way to develop the kinds of intuitions that make somebody an exceptional machine learning engineer or machine learning researcher. And I would, I would encourage people to, to really think about how to, uh, how to develop that understanding as, as deep as possible. Fantastic. Great advice. Well, on that note, uh, Dan, what is the best way for, what are the best ways for our uh, listeners to get in touch with you or follow you, contact you, just see how your career develops from here? Uh, so my uh, LinkedIn, Dan Schiebler, uh, works. Mm -hmm. uh, also, my, my email, if, if anyone has any, any questions for me, I'm, I'm happy to answer. It's just danschiebler at gmail.com uh, or dschiebler at twitter.com if it's Twitter related. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, fantastic. Well, once again, thanks so much. And uh, you mentioned one book. And before I let you go, I wanted to see, do you have any other books that you can recommend for, you know, that have impacted your career personally? Absolutely. I have, uh, I have two books actually that I'll, that I'll recommend. Okay. Uh, so the, the first one is, is something I read very early on. It, it was, uh, probably the first actual textbook that I read that had any, anything to do with programming. And it's coding the matrix by, by Philip Klein. And it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. actually a book on linear algebra and I I'd recommend it for somebody who is either a, a data analyst or a software engineer who doesn't necessarily uh, feel that they're they're super comfortable with linear algebra because I, the ideas introduced in this book there's many uh, there's many of them that ended up being really pivotal in my understanding of machine learning and so I, I think it's just written from a great perspective of somebody who who wants to understand how each of these different algorithms that deal with matrices and deal with vectors play together in a way that makes sense to someone who's who's used to programming gotcha and uh, it's interesting klein i i first a second i thought it was uh, the klein that developed that uh, abstract mathematical concept what is it called the, the bottle of klein or something yep. like that but obviously not <laughs> that's probably not right that's the it's a more recent guy it, it is. Um, he is a little bit more recent, uh, but he, but he's also a yeah. very abstract mathematician who does, does some very very interesting abstract research uh, on on graph gotcha. theory. Uh, All right, and the second book. So the second book is something that I, I read more recently, 
Uh, it's an introduction to computational learning theory uh, by Michael Kearns. Mm-hmm. And so this mm-hmm. this is a uh, definitely a far less applied book and and not necessarily something that I'd, I'd recommend to someone who's looking for a, a book that will immediately change their career. But it's it's written from the perspective of the state of the art of machine learning and the theory behind machine learning in 1994. And it introduces a, a lot of fundamental ideas, some of which have, have really gone on to take off and some of which were largely forgotten. But understanding things from, from that perspective and in the theoretical framework that's discussed in it, I think has given me a lot of context in learning new things about machine learning and understanding which ideas last and which ideas uh, end up disappearing. Fantastic. Exactly exactly what you mentioned before. Yeah. Study the history of something. Yeah. Very cool. Exactly. It's interesting you mentioned that because like in, in the five minute Friday episodes that I do in the podcast, like literally as this episode is going to go live, there are uh, there's going to be five episodes about the history of data science. Like it doesn't go into the details of algorithms and things like that, but historically how the field of data science has been uh, progressing. And because I was like also curious, I had the same uh, thought. Um, well, in fact, actually, um, uh, the team suggested this and I was like, wow, this is a really cool idea. W- knowing the history of something allows you to understand better what the future will, will be like. Or Absolutely at least, agree. Yeah, at least the fundamentals, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, that sounds great. Awesome. Well, once again, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Looking forward to seeing you at uh, Data Science Go 2020. Can't wait for your talk. It's going to be epic. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thank you. So there you have it, everybody. That was Dan Schiebler, Senior Machine Learning Engineer at Twitter Cortex. What was your favorite part of the discussion? For me, it was definitely the whole talk about Dan's PhD This whole conversation about theoretic machine learning and algebraic topology brought back uh, memories rushing from my university years. So it was really good fun um, listening to that. But I'm sure you had your personal favorite of this talk. If you would like to meet Dan in person and be part of that Advanced Practitioner Workshop exclusive track for Advanced Practitioners, make sure to secure your seat today. Uh, head on over to datasciencego.com, click the option for Los Angeles. Um, you will be there. So we're running in two cities this year in Berlin, Los Angeles. You want the Los Angeles option for 23rd, 24th, 25th of October. Get your ticket today and you'll be part of that advanced practitioner group. You'll learn from Dan in a hands-on workshop personally from him. So once again, the website is datasciencego.com. And as usual, you can get all of the show notes and materials mentioned in this episode at superdatascience.com slash 345. You'll get the transcript there, plus any um, links, materials we mentioned, including a link or the URL to Dan's LinkedIn, where you can connect with him and follow him and any other uh, places on social media where you can catch up and follow him there as well. So that is at superdatascience.com slash 345. That's also how you can share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Just send them the link superdatascience.com slash 345 so they can get up to speed with all the amazing topics we talked about today, uh, including vectors, embedding, nearest neighbors, uh, different techniques and methodologies Dan uses in his work, plus how to think about your career 
and why to maybe even do a PhD in parallel. So there we go. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Can't wait to see you on the next one. And until then, my friends, happy analyzing. <laughs>